With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Hello, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, and I want to say thank you for supporting the Open Your Eyes podcast. Our reach and growth was tremendous in 2021. Thanks to our amazing guests, sponsors, and loyal audience. We look forward to bringing you more riveting interviews in 2022. Now, please enjoy the best of podcast highlights of 2021. Well, how many people a year or kids would you say get a concussion playing sports? Oh, I wish I knew that number off the top of my head. I don't. I know that it is potentially underrepresented, even if you did see that number. It's better now than it used to be due to all of the public awareness and all of the required um, coaching that has to be done, not only with the, the actual coaches, but also with the people that work with teams. Not every high school team has an athletic trainer right now, which is something that is, um, it, it's sad, but it, it's true. So the more public awareness we have about something like this, the safer our kids will be. So are there things, you work with the Miami Dolphins, are there special helmets? Can we prevent concussion or at least lower the risk of it with our kids? I heard a doctor, it was actually Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald say something that I thought was just so smart. It's almost like we would be safer if we didn't have helmets at all, because the helmets almost give us that false sense of security because yes, they're protecting your structure, but everything still happens inside of it. And to answer your question, there are different types of helmets that are out there. Um, there are, um, Helmets that came out, it's been a couple of years ago now, back in 2018, we were talking about them and they were actually backed by a lot of players and they had testing that was done as far as shock absorption inside of the helmet. But as far as what you get for your kids, I would really lean on your, your local doctors uh, and get specific information for your kids. A good fit on a helmet is almost just as important as having the best, most expensive helmet. I hear stories about people that I know that had helmets that were too small for them back when they played in college and they actually had to take padding out of the helmet to fit it on their head. And you have to imagine that when you're talking about youth sports and a lot of kids are just getting things that, you know, they go and get from other family members. We have to really make sure that you have what fits you the best. Now, I mean, there's more than one way of getting a concussion. You could get a direct hit or it could be rotational. If you could explain the different ways that people could get a concussion, especially when they're playing something like football or whatever sport. Absolutely. So what you have is the brain inside of the inside of your skull that's kind of floating there. And it's kind of a, a gelatinous 
sort of materials. So when you have a direct blow, sometimes you can have bruising on that side of the, the brain where you actually sustain the injury. Or sometimes it can be what we call a contra-coup injury where it actually slaps against the other side of the skull. So whiplash is something that can also cause a concussion. The definition of a concussion, I think it's something like a, a bump jolt or something like that to the body that causes this injury. It doesn't even have to be a, a head injury per se. And the thing that causes a lot of damage, especially long-term damage, when we're talking about things like CTE, that chronic traumatic brain injury, is that torsional force because we have all of those connections in our brain that have to stay connected. And when you have that rotation, that's where you have a lot of damage. And then uh, it's hard for the body to then come up and repair that. And a lot of different neurotransmitters are affected and chemicals are coming out because your body's trying to repair itself because of that, that tearing type shearing force. You bring up a good uh, good question. What is the difference between CTE, TBI, and concussion? Okay, that's a great one. <laughs> so TBI stands for traumatic brain injury. And there is a wide spectrum of mild traumatic brain injuries to severe. When we talk about concussions, we're talking about mild traumatic brain injuries. And that is a general way of thinking. You can think about it as a functional problem, but not a structural problem normally. It's not that you have um, you know, an MRI or some sort of special testing that you did that says, look, there's damage to this part of the brain. It's that everything for the most part looks normal unless you did special testing like a, a functional MRI, which most people won't have access to. Everything looks structurally normal, but it causes a functional problem. When we talk about CTE or that chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the problem with that is that it's small subconcussive damage over time. Because like we said, each time you have that blow, you have changes to the brain. And over time, you start to have different structural changes because of different, um, I don't really want to get into like tau and things like that, all the details you release different things in your brain each time there's an injury that over time cause these bigger problems. And that's what you hear about when you hear about, you know, NFL players way down the line that have these injuries. And that's the kind of thing that hasn't been known about for very long, if you really think about it. And it's not just football players, but any athlete that has lots of sub-concussive hits after time. How about boxers? Absolutely. That was the original uh, kind of way that we knew about about all of the concussions, right? Is it was a it was a boxing injury, and um, you know when you were playing football or you're playing some other sport, soccer, and you fell and hit your head, you know it was just shake it off. And now, luckily, we know a little bit more about the long term effects of that and and the risk of second concussions if you're not treated appropriately for the first one. What's the age group where we really have to worry about concussions in young kids where it could really be significant as they get older where they're at greater risk as they get older of depression or some other type of some other type of problem because they've had concussions as a child well you worry about 
smaller kids having concussions more because they're basically like little bobbleheads, right? They don't have all of that, that skeletal, musculoskeletal um, support system that they should. They look like big heads on little bodies. So they're more likely to get those injuries. So as soon as they're playing sports, that's when you need to know about concussions and worry about them. As far as when you start to have those other CTE-like symptoms, that's something that we're still learning more about because there's not really uh, a general test to know if somebody actually has CT unless it's post-mortem after they've already passed. That's where they're looking for all of those actual structural changes. Although they do suspect that people are having them at all different ages. And uh, I can't tell you the exact research, but I know that there is a link to the younger you start playing and the more, more hits you have, obviously it's going to increase the, the prevalence, the likelihood that you could sustain um, these injuries to get CTE, but they also have seen players um, with CTE that didn't play football for long, or I keep saying football and I shouldn't, right? Because it's any sport, it could happen. I see a lot of, you know, lacrosse injuries even, um, but it's just, everyone's different. And just because they only played a sport for a certain amount of time doesn't mean that they didn't have other factors like in the car accident. You don't know what other injuries they had to contribute to whatever those end findings are. There have been a number of very famous athletes, specifically football players, who have donated their brain and they have found the towel. Can you tell some of those stories? Yeah, much of this goes back to work that was done uh, in the early 2000s and uh, to a certain extent, that's how I got into this was uh, my association with Chris Nowinski, Dr. Chris Nowinski and others at the, uh, at the Center for the Study of Traumatic Encephalopathy at Boston University, um, where uh, Dr. Nowinski and, and, and his, uh, his mentor, Dr. Ann McKee, uh, Dr. McKee was one of the first individuals to be able to develop a staining technique in order to identify these structural abnormalities or the presence of tau within the brain of individuals with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and it, it's interesting in that not only does tau accumulate in the brain, but it accumulates selectively in certain areas, such as the more the frontal parts of the brain and a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And these are responsible not only for um, not, not only for memory and cognition, but also for what is termed executive function. Executive function is largely our ability as human beings to distinguish right, right from wrong and, and not act out on our emotions. And that is a very common problem of, in, of individuals with CTE is that they lose that regulator. They, they, they lose that executive function. They're, they're, they're very quick to anger, which uh, tends to be one of the earlier signs of CTE. And uh, that it hits the frontal part of the brain, I guess, is because that's the part of the brain that there's a lot of trauma to. Uh, yes, that that's that's that 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 certainly is true. Um, the interesting thing is where where the protein forms is at the base of these 
these indentations in the brain called cortical sulci and and that to a certain extent seems to be a matter of physics that if you have a if you have a force that is being impacted against an object that's curved it's going it, to it's the, the the greatest intensity of the force is probably going to go toward the curved area and that may that may explain why not only is this frontal vulnerability uh, but also why this deposition occurs at the base of these cortical sulci. Now, interestingly enough, um, you know, this is you know what has led us to be looking at eye movements, um, you know, in in the setting of traumatic brain injury. Is that this part of the brain not only is essentially one of the hallmark areas for CTE, but it also is responsible for for governing eye movements. And, and that, that's where there's a lot of very exciting research going, uh, particularly with as it relates to concussion and, and the ability to screen for concussion, looking for abnormal eye movements. If you could tell the story of Dave Durson and Junior Seau and maybe some other famous athletes who have donated their brain, who, who have gone through this. Sure. Um, Dave Durson, of course, was um, a standout uh, player for the Chicago Bears, uh, specifically was part of the 1985 Bears uh, Super Bowl champion team. Uh, he um, was, uh, you know, he had the reputation for being a very aggressive hitter as a defensive back. Uh, and then following his retirement from the NFL, he became very successful in, in business. And uh, over a period of a number of years, um, he began to show signs of abusiveness uh, toward his family as well as his friends. He made bad business decisions and ultimately the business uh, uh, declared bankruptcy. And then uh, ultimately Mr. Dewerson uh, committed suicide. And, and, he, and he did so uh, in a very unique way. He, he shot himself in the chest and his suicide note specifically indicated, please, please see that my brain is given to the NFL's brain bank. So he made a conscious decision uh, to end his life, but to do so in a way so that his brain could be, uh, could, could, could be studied. And, and indeed, he was found to have advanced. His brain was studied uh, at Boston University. He was found to have advanced uh, findings of, of uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And, and of course, these, these cases, uh, be they suicide related or non-suicide related, uh, the pattern of the deposition of tau, the, the changes that occur within the brain uh, uh, to, are, 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 are certainly quite repetitive and, and are unique to this disease process. And Junior Seau? Junior Seau, I don't know as much about, uh, other than, of course, um, you know, he, he also had, you know, issues with, uh, with, uh, he, he underwent behavioral changes uh, later in, later in life, uh, similarly took his own life, uh, and his brain was also found to have rather advanced stages of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, the same is true of Aaron, Aaron Hernandez. And of course, going back to some of the very early cases, Andre Waters, who played for the, the Philadelphia Eagles. And then some, you know, somebody who grew up in the Pittsburgh area, someone who, uh, you know, of course, I watched every, every Sunday uh, as a kid growing up. And that was uh, Mike Webster, uh, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So what is the epidemiology of concussion? How common is it? And 
do kids that have concussions and even maybe adult athletes, do they tell people that they that their head is hurting and that they may have a concussion? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, you know, the, the, the true statistics as it relates to what is the prevalence of concussion uh, remains something of a moving target. Uh, the incidence and the prevalence of concussion have been on the rise over the past 10 years, but we believe that much of that is simply related to higher levels of understanding and, and, and you know, work being done, for instance, by the Concussion Legacy Foundation and others uh, to make the general public more aware of concussion, to be testing for concussion on the sidelines. Uh, that I think plays a, a big role in the, in, in the increase in reporting of concussion year over year. Um, but yes, there still remains a challenge as it relates to individuals and their inability to, shall we say, self-identify, uh, you know, during, uh, you know, during a practice event or during a game scenario uh, where they have been concussed to take themselves out uh, of uh, to, to take themselves out of the game. Uh, and that's one of the, you know, that that's that's one of the initiatives that we're working on is is trying to educate athletes. Uh, to not only be concerned about their own well-being, uh, but also for their teammates to be concerned about the well-being of their of, of their colleagues, um, and, and it, it is very very important that individuals not simply be hiding or or holding this in, uh, and that to a certain extent is uh, you know is I mean we we've you know for those of us that are uh, more mature I guess. Um, you know, essentially, that's the way you were taught is or that's the way you were coached is, you know, suck it up, get out there and play. The biggest challenge is in youth sports. Uh, this is this can be absolutely devastating. Uh, number one, we now know that concussions are more serious in kids and kids and adolescents as compared to adults. And much of that is based upon physiology. We know that the white matter tracks of the brain are still being laid down well into adolescence. Some studies indicate into the early 20s. So as these brains are developing, they're that much more vulnerable uh, to the to you know to the to, to the impact to, to the forces uh, associated with this with these repetitive head injuries, with or without concussion, I, I may add. Um, but the, the, the other, one of the other uh, big challenges as it relates to youth sports is a selective complication of traumatic brain injury. And that's something called second impact syndrome. And that is only reported in younger athletes. You don't see this reported in mature brains. You, you don't see it reported among NFL players, NHL players, professional athletes at any level uh, where an individual essentially is concussed. And before the brain has a chance to heal itself, they sustain a second impact. And oftentimes that second impact is, can be viewed as somewhat nominal. And the underlying pathophysiology is poorly understood, but what seems to occur is that the second impact, uh, it kicks off this, this vicious cascade of events that occurs within the brain uh, where it becomes dramatically swollen uh, and it herniates somewhat downward where it compresses the very vital structures of the brainstem resulting in respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest, 
Uh, and over 90% of these individuals, uh, they're, they're dead typically within a matter of hours. And that is unique only to use sports. So, you know, developing brains are more, are more susceptible to damage from repetitive head injury. And, you know, there is this, uh, then we, we need to be aware of second impact syndrome. It's rare, uh, but, but certainly it's lethal. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. So is it just people with brain injury or do you also do people that have neurodegenerative disease such as Parkinson, Alzheimer's, and other neurological conditions? Absolutely. So any neurodegenerative affect, so dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's is all in a part of that because it's your brain that runs it, right? And the eyes are such an integral part of determining what's going to happen for that patient and how we need to intervene uh, with some sort of therapy. So how long has therapy been done for people with eyes for that have neurodegenerative disease or TBIs, concussion, et cetera? Well, concussion diagnoses have been around since 600 AD. And what's happened is that it's really been the NFL that has catapulted it forward. So with that $7 million uh, plus settlement, the NFL knew where it was getting itself involved with concussion. So what ends up happening is that in the 1970s, there started to be more of a connection between the eyes and the brain, although it's been there the whole time. And so now it's getting better traction because we have better technologies to show how uh, the eyes and the brain work together. And when did the specialty in optometry kind of start? Oh, neurooptometry is probably that, that uh, catch-all. It's probably been around for at least 40, 50, 60 years. And it's probably gotten more traction because now we have more patients that are being diagnosed with concussion, traumatic brain injury, stroke, and then, of course, neurodegenerative affect. And people are living longer. You know, medicine is keeping these people uh, alive longer. And so as a result, then we have to come up with better ways to give them quality of life. So what is the difference between concussion, TBI, and CTE? So concussion would be uh, technically, uh, it's where you have more of a functional affect that happens. So what happens is that not all mild traumatic brain injuries are concussions, but all concussions are a mild traumatic brain injury. And what happens is that if that person gets a CT scan and they have a brain bleed, if that anything shows up on imaging, that's not a concussion. So 99.9% .9 of people who get a concussion have a functional affect that occurs with that, not something that's structure or on imaging. And then CTE, Technically, CTE cannot be diagnosed unless you're taking and doing an autopsy on that brain. Now, the suspicion of CTE is that continual assault uh, with a concussion and traumatic brain injury. But we, we also fail to talk about what kinds of uh, supplements these athletes get into and how that could progress any type of brain trauma. So what kind of supplements do they get into and how can they progress brain trauma? Well, anytime we're dealing with uh, any type of um, uh, performance enhancing drug, 
will have some sort of affect on the brain. And we have to kind of take a look at that. The other thing is, is a lot of people, to use an example, C, uh, CD, CBD oil and um, hemp, a lot of people use that in a concussion or a seizure-like affect, and they say how helpful it is. But once again, what, do we, what target are we looking at? So can CBD oil and hemp uh, marijuana be dangerous to the brain? The answer is absolutely yes. So if an athlete is already smoking or taking uh, CBD or, or some form of THC, does, if it's just CBD but no THC involved with it, does it matter or does it have to be like more like street type of marijuana that we're talking about? Yeah, so any of that could be harmful. Not everyone's built the same. So the genetic makeup and how that person does their life uh, will also influence what something does to them. So the difficulty is, is that CBD uh, is great for seizure disorder and perhaps migraine. But the problem is, is that we don't always know what target we're looking at. And so that's what makes that so dangerous is we don't have good targets. But you know what? In our prescription medications, sometimes we don't have good targets either. So it, it is a, it's, it's just an up and down to figure out how this works. And you mentioned performance enhancing drug increases the risk of concussion. Are we talking about testosterone or what other types be, besides CBD are we talking about? Well, you, you can look at nitric oxide. You can look at your uh, steroids, uh, your um, antibiotic uh, steroids or your, uh, uh, why can't I think of the word right now? Anabolic. Thank you. Uh, so once again, anything in a particular substance can cause challenges to that uh, blood-brain barrier to that brain. Before you said that if they see a bleed on the scan, then it's not a concussion. What does it mean if there is a bleed? What is it? Then you're going to have a mild traumatic brain injury or a moderate uh, traumatic brain injury. That pulls that out of that concussion realm. So with the concussion diagnosis, it's, it's suspicion of injury and symptom and symptom provocation. And so that's, that's the true diagnosis of a concussion. We don't have any biomarker yet that tells us whether or not someone's had a concussion. And so we look to certain kinds of things in order to do that. 86% of people uh, who have a true concussion will get better in 26 days. And then you have the 20 to 30% malingers that have problems that continue on. And in the adult population right now, if you have symptoms, concussion symptoms, that are lasting longer than seven days, you are considered now a post-concussion uh, patient and we need to get that patient moving so we get them better. And do we know why we're getting myopia? Is it UV light? Is it dopamine? Uh, there's a dopamine theory. What, what are some of the theories of why people become uh, myopic? You know, one of the most important, so genetics, that's a big one. That is a big, big, why do people come become myopic? Um, kind of a cool other theory that I like to use a lot when talking to families because we do get asked that almost with every consultation for um, any nearsighted person. Basically, it's like, well, what have I done wrong that my kid is now has this prescription? Like I, you know, they keep them outdoors and all this stuff and you can do everything right according to the literature that you know of. And still some patients, a lot of patients, as you can you know, know from these statistics that we're getting about globally, these numbers just raising you know, genetics. But uh, one way that I like to explain to parents, why is your kid getting a little more myopic? 
is that optical defocus theory. It's kind of an interesting area. And if you think about the human body, it wants to be in equilibrium all 100% of the time if it could, not that we ever are. I mean, I'm a Libra. I'm always finding the balance in one way or another. And we're bodies are the same. We're trying and trying to have things be at balance. And one way of looking at this in a very simplistic way for us all to understand what's actually happening and what the basis of a lot of our myopia management therapies are is the eye wants to be normal. The eye wants to be clear. It wants a clear picture inside of it. So if at any point based on genetics or there's a mismatch of the light that creates a picture inside the eye that's blurry, you know, the eye wants to catch the light. It can't shrink. So it'll grow longer with blur. And that's one way of looking at it. And so, you know, again, optical defocus is a really important reason that we always want to correct fully and properly when it comes to managing myopia. Um, even if we aren't, you know, although the standard is really to perform myopia control therapies today, even in the case where we are correcting just for vision, that's why it's really important never to undercorrect anymore, not overcorrection. We want Goldilocks and the three bears just right so that we can really nail that clear vision and then as far as the myopia control, that's a whole nother, and I'll let you, if you want me to get into it, that whole can of worms is kind of a fun one. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but you, you talked about fully correction. It's, it's very common that a patient will come in and say, I don't want the full prescription. Just give totally. me a little bit less. So what, what, what's the theory? You just kind of mentioned it, but can you go into that a little bit more by now? You know, and it's a, it's an old, it's an old is the wrong word. It's, you know, we are constantly changing what we do in science based off of lessons that we learn. And at one point there was a theory that said under correcting is absolutely the way to go for children in particular to prevent. And I do see a lot of patients of different all ages with plus or minus prescriptions, having the perception that they will become dependent on that correction. If they're given the full correction, they want their eyes to work a little bit. They don't want to be fully dependent. And so I do see patients asking for that. But again, when it comes to myopia, if we're under correcting during those aging years between, you know, basically, you know, pre preschool up until our kind of mid twenties, we run the likelihood of actually accelerating the growth and increasing our prescription, which is kind of a misconception by patients. I think what happens sometimes is getting a really clear picture too for somebody, um, and then they take it off. They're more reliant on that really clear picture. And so they'll feel sometimes that the eyes are becoming weakened by their full correction. And this happens in hyperopes as well, or the patients that are actually farsighted and need the near help. And so again, it's a misconception um, and especially scientifically important when we are managing children in particular to correct where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. In the winter, there's been some studies that show that myopia increases three to four times, uh, gets worse in the winter months. Do you have a theory about that? You know, a lot of people talk about that as depending on where you are globally too. Um, winter time is very different in countries like where I am, where indoor time is very, you know, the norm, you know, versus winter time in other parts of the world. Um, light levels also have been speculated to play a role as far as like, where is the sun in the world during those months? 
And those are studies, the light studies are, you know, ongoing in regards to how it be, how it's actually affected, but they're all kind of play a role. So my feeling, especially where I am at is my Canadian kiddos are spending more time inside during the winter months. And that's just part of it with that viewing level being distant versus near. And do you think we could predict, you know, around age five, if somebody's going to become myopic? Generally, yes. I would say generally, um, but there are exceptions to those, right? And so, you know, it's really amazing. We do our very best to predict everything that we can. And then lo and behold, there'll be, you know, a lot of the time kids will do things that you don't expect or have a genetic that doesn't, isn't expressed in the way you would expect. But I would argue that based off of kind of evidence-based risk factors, I am confident most of the time and putting my money on what is about to happen. And one of the major things that we look at is where does a child lie in regards to their age norm? And so a five-year-old, when we have a developing eye, if we were to have an eye that is developing perfectly from birth to become a zero prescription eye, that perfect, perfect length, it actually starts on the other side of zero in the plus direction when they're born. That means that babies and kids up to about three, four, five years old are actually a little bit farsighted. And the reason that works for kids is because they can flex those eye muscles without even thinking about it and have clear vision at all distances as their eye is growing to become zero. So if we see children at age five who have shifted faster from two or three past their expected age growth. And there are starting to be charts and data coming out for different demographics all over the world for what is normal growth. For example, should at this age, you know, how much shift should a child be making each year toward the zero? And if you look at parental factors, so genetics is the biggest one at that age and how are they shifting towards zero? Are they shifting at a rate that's faster than their age norm? Then you can pretty much predict that they're going to be myopic. We also know that children who are zero when they're three or four are aiming for myopia because they should only be zero when they're five or six years old, according to their developmental age norm to be zero. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.